Well, here we are at the Cornhusker Marriott Hotel in downtown Lincoln with Dr. Richard Vargas. You are a doctor? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a legit one, too. I, I did work for it. This isn't an honorary situation. <laughs> this is not. Okay, no, no. good. Good to know, because yeah. we would have ridiculed you in the interview. Yeah, after <laughs> I was gone. After I was gone. Yeah. So, um, well, why don't we start off by perhaps telling us about your background and then also getting into what the IFCA International is, because here we are at the IFCA International Convention, right. and perhaps, you know, you've been on a plane with somebody and who's a Christian, and you say you're the director of the IFCA, and they say, what on earth is that? So yeah. just your background and then uh, just your elevator pitch for sure. what the IFCA is. Yeah, so my background is I came to uh, Christ um, probably in the er- my early 20s. Um, my parents got saved when I was when I was really young. I was about five or six, and I uh, started going to uh, Alex Montoya's church, who's a leader here and a pastor in the IFCA, and uh, and grew up really in that church. So constantly heard the gospel, was really grounded uh, biblically, um, but really didn't make Christ my savior. I mean, although I would have probably at some point said, "Yeah, I'm a Christian." Um, throughout high school, uh, beginning probably in my second year of high school, really started openly rebelling. Uh, the wretchedness of my heart just started coming out. I didn't have opportunity when I was younger. So um, right after high school, I got married, and our marriage was just struggling because, um, you know, you, when you're a selfish person, it's one thing. But when you're a selfish person and you marry another sinner, it, all the ugliness comes out. And so um, it was it was a friend who we grew up with in church that... Um, rebelled also but actually outwardly showed their rebellion ours was more uh, internal his was external his big revolver tattoo he joined a skinhead gang he was drinking and carousing and stuff and one night he was uh, on the way home from a party on his motorcycle and uh, didn't navigate a turn right and hit a brick wall and killed him you know and that just really woke us up to understand that we need to get right with God and I'd already been calling out and saying, you know, I know, I know my parents know you, but I don't know if I know you, God, and, and I don't even know how to be a husband. Uh, we had stopped going to church after we got married pretty quick. And uh, so when I, when I called it to God, he heard my cries. We, uh, I, I, we didn't even know where our Bibles were. And so we went, I went to a Christian bookstore. I got two Bibles with our names imprinted on them and uh, picked up my wife at work. And we wept over the, not only the loss of our friend, but actually understanding where we were with God and just calling on him to save us, to save us um, and to save our marriage. Because we, we were newly married. We were very young. We were just living for ourselves. And that day, I mean, our lives just radically changed. There was um, just a lot of changes that happened personally, uh, internally. Our, our marriage, um, our involvement with the church really began then. My dad was an elder at Alex Montoya's church and eventually was sent to to plant a church nearby where um, my, my mom and dad lived. And we happened to live there at, right after our marriage. So um, my, I got baptized. I'd never been baptized. And then my dad said, why don't you come help us plant this church? So we said, yeah, we'd love to do that, Dad. So that's why church planting is in my blood. Uh, help my dad w- with, you know, me and my wife would start in the bedroom at a house. We'd start uh, with the kids, just watching the kids. And just grew learning new things. And this is in L.A.? This is in L.A., yeah. What, this what is, part of L.A.? Well, this is what they call the uh, Inland Empire, which was, uh, we, we lived in Ontario, and uh, the church started in 
Pomona and eventually moved to Ontario when when they were um, out of a home into um, rented space and then eventually purchased a church property, which is still there. The church is still going. My dad and mom have moved on. Church plant is still going strong. Um, and so I just used that. And that really led on to, uh, in my young Christian walk, for me to, uh, uh, well, actually, it didn't start with me. It started with my mom and, I mean, with my dad and my wife who said, you need to go back to school. And since I started messing around in school, right, in midway in high school, um, I had pretty good grades up to that point. But then you start not going to classes it starts to affect you and so uh I, I told my wife and my dad you know if i if i go to school um god's gonna have to get me in i didn't take the sats didn't really like school at that point said so i don't i don't know that the school would accept me so um i did i i, I took the sats um and got into uh the school that i was going to go to uh, because I I grown up in an IFCA church, wasn't really familiar with it, but I was familiar with some of the people, and so the history of IFCA actually extends into in LA to the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, founded by men from IFCA as a Bible Institute. At the point that I was ready to go, it was now called Bible University, and so I'm thinking, well, this is a school that fits with what I believe. I mean, this would be a great thing. And so that's where I apply. I didn't apply anywhere else. And so, uh, and got accepted by the grace of God and then started attending so that I could be trained to continue helping our church plants. Now, it's another story. When I got there, I realized that the Bible Institute of Los Angeles and the IFCA guys that started that school were not the same theology as they were when I got there. And so it had a different impact on me. What year was that at the risk of... Showing your uh, age. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. So um, I, I, I'm trying to remember the date now. Let me check. I, I have my graduate graduation ring on. So I went in '92. Okay. '92. Graduated in '97, and so um, what it did for me was I went in knowing what I was taught, even in my childhood in our IFCA church, my Bible church. I was taught what to believe, and I was shown it from Scripture. But just like the crisis of faith I had in high school where I knew this stuff, but I didn't really believe, now I was going into an environment where things like uh, women pastors, cessationism, uh, even, even some shocking conversations with professors on issues of inerrancy mm. that came up, now I started running to, to the scriptures and defending even to professors as well as fellow students this is what what the scriptures say having these hard conversations having to work through that now i didn't go to school to defend my faith i went to school to learn but i found in a not always uh, you know receptive environment it was sometimes hostile that i had to learn to defend it for myself and so it did cause me to grow up doctrinally very quickly to know this is what I believe and here's why I believe it. It moved from what I was taught to what I truly grasped myself. And so I was thankful for that. When I finished that, um, the idea was that I'd go back. Um, we're still continuing to serve at my mom and dad's church plant, but the idea was that they would hire me on as their youth pastor 
Um, and at the end of the five years, you know, five years isn't much for a church plant to get well established. My dad was only a part-time paid pastor and he was, uh, he's an LAPD officer at the time. And so that's where he's getting, you know, his pay and they're, they're paying him part-time to, to, you know, just to support him. And, uh, you know, my dad said, you know, we, we, we know we told you that when you get finished with school, we'd hire you on, but we're not at that place. And so there was some conversation about my dad taking his pay and just giving it to me to help oh. support us because he didn't need it. But the church didn't want to do that. They said, we really need to support you, Pastor. And, uh, you know, yeah. my dad was saddened by that. But, you know, it was in the providence of God. And so he said, I, we understand if you need to move on. So we did. I went to a garb church. That's the only time I've been outside of IFC circles, out in the middle of the desert, because we really felt that the Lord had called us to do this, to serve in this ministry. And it was a great joy. We have still have a lot of friends. It's kind of, you guys are younger guys. So it, it, this is a shock is that the, the people in our junior high and high school, but our junior high, the, the youngest kids in our group are now married with kids that are going to college. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is crazy how long that's been. But um, it was a great experience for us. But part of the downfall of my training, I was a Christian education slash Bible major at Biola. And um, I didn't really feel like I was equipped to be an expositor. Um, and I knew a little bit about who John MacArthur was, but I didn't know a whole lot about him. And so I got out into this. I mean, it was physically in the desert, but it somewhat was felt like a spiritual desert for me because I'm hunting for how do you do the right thing? And uh, I was kind of the typical youth pastor, you know, the pizza and volleyball pastor. That's really what they were looking for. And so I'm giving them Bible, but I'm feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. So what ended up happening was um, I started looking for where could I go to school. And this was in the uh, kind of the corner of California, the desert out there near Yuma, Arizona and Mexico. We're a pit stop. That town is called Brawley. Pit stop on the way for all the churches that are going to Mexico on a, on a mission trip. You go through Brawley. That's the town. It's a farming town. It's a irrigation farming. And so um, I'm way out there. The closest big area is San Diego. And I'm looking. I'm thinking, well, there's Westminster and Escondido. That's two hours away. And, of course, they're covenantal. We have a lot of things we agree with, but I don't know. And at the same time, I'm listening, uh, find out about uh, Grace to You, and they've got this tape lending library. That's dating me, right? Tapes. So you what tell them. Yeah, what's that? That's, <laughs> I have to show that to my kids. I'm like, this is a record, kids. And so, um, you, you know, you get so many tapes, and you send them back with the order for the next set. And so I'm listening to these messages. MacArthur's Study Bible has just come out. My wife ordered it for me and some commentaries from the, the set at the time that was uh, available. And I'm reading these things and I'm, I'm digging deeper and I've changed now I've changed the whole youth ministry. It's gone from, you know, pizza and, and games to um, we're going we're teaching through books. And um, although we knew we're not the church, we're not trying to replace the church. We are moving it towards worship versus entertainment. And we are seeing phenomenal growth. But I know I'm not ready. And, but I'm, I'm seeing, well, this is what Bible teaching looks like. And I don't have those tools. So as I'm looking for someplace, I think, well, this master seminary, let me, let me try. Let me see, see if that's the thing. So I reach out to them. I get an application, fill it out. And we're struggling with leaving our ministry, um, struggling with some things going on in the church. 
And um, we had some friends that were Word of Life missionaries that we loved and we knew for years before we even went there. And they'd come over and we sat around the dinner table and we're sharing with them our heart. And uh, I'll never forget this, the, the missionary friend, he looks at me and he says, well, it sounds like you know what God wants you to do, but you're just being disobedient. You know, those are the, those are the heart-to-hearts you need to have sometimes. And me and my wife looked at each other shocked, but knowing it was true, and we said, yeah, we're going to have to leave this place we love, these people we love, and we're just going to have to follow the Lord again. We followed him into 120-degree desert temperatures, but we're going to have to walk away from people we love to get training. So we did that. The seminary accepted me. I went there for um, my MDiv, and then um, they were developing the Doctor of Ministry program there while I was in. And the first, they were just ready when I was graduating. So the first cohort started, and Rick Holland at the time was the uh, the director of that program. He came to me and he said, "I think I think you need to, you're 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 done, but I think you need to keep going." Now, they have a requirement. You have to be preaching for so many years. During my MDiv, Alex Montoya came to me and said, we've got a church, and they need a pastor. The pastor is resigning, and we asked him to stay on until we find a new one. We want you to pray about it, and I'll give you two weeks. Tell me what what you're going to do. So I was already in my local church, the one that I was there until I left to come to IFCA. For 17 years, I was there at that church, but I started while I was in seminary. Even though I told Alex Montoya, I said, I've not even had your preaching classes. How do you know I can preach? And he said, uh, I'll never forget this. He said, um, well, churches, little churches are hard to kill. So you'll be fine. <laughs> so anyways, uh, MDiv, uh, then right, right into, because I was preaching and they knew me because I had my MDiv there. They said, we know that you meet all the minimum requirements. We know you're already in ministry. Um, we'll go ahead and cover those for you. Just come on right on. So I was in the first cohort of the doctor of ministry program at uh, Masters. And while I was there, um, my pastor, Alex, came over and he said, we, we could use your help in uh, preaching labs. Can you maybe help us out and start teaching that in, in those? So that's what broke me into teaching um, in the academic side. As I started in the labs, I had a chance to preach, uh, to do preaching one. The labs were preaching two. And then eventually the guy that was doing the preaching three classes um, uh, took on uh, ministry in the Philippines. And he, and he came to me and he said, why don't you teach this? So I got to start teaching that. And then I also eventually got to do some um, work with guys that were in the DMIN program on uh, helping them with their dissertations and some, some other advising, things like that. So it was a great time. I enjoyed it. Um, but I'm a churchman as well. I, I, don't, I, like, I love the academic side. But... M- even though I had some opportunities to maybe expand the academic side, um, I always came with, well, if I can still be a pastor, then, I, then I'll do that. But if, if you can't give me the time I need to be with my flock, then I'm a churchman first. And so some of those doors closed. They, they didn't, I didn't get to take those opportunities. But my heart is with the church. And so when the opportunity came to serve in IFCA, I said, I'm a churchman. I can't leave my church. They said, that's what we want. We want a churchman. So God had to do that through a whole series of circumstances. But that's what brought me here is I love the church. Praise yeah. God. Yeah. So, the, so now you're here as the executive director yep. of IFCA. And now this, we're at the IFCA National Convention. Yeah. The first one in person that you are the director for. Right, right. We had COVID last year and all that. 
like Jeremy mentioned earlier, okay, you're, you meet somebody for the yeah. first time, they're a Christian, and you say, oh, yeah, I'm the executive director of IFC International. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think the easiest way that the former executive director said he'd explain it is it's a denomination for non-denominational churches, <laughs> which doesn't help a lot, but at least it's it's a quick thing. Um, we come out of an, an era of time when the denominations were sliding into liberalism, which is really familiar right now in the time we're living in. But because of that, the independent churches coming out of those uh, denominations said, we do know we need to work together still, but we want to be autonomous. So IFCA is a conglomerate of churches, individuals, both vocational pastors, missionaries, other kind of leaders, elders, and those that are laymen, as well as other organizations like missions agencies and educational institutes like Bible colleges and seminaries mm -hmm. and things like that, all working together. The hub that holds IFCA together is our doctrine. Everything else revolves around the doctrine. So we're all focused on that so that we know we can work together and cooperate because we all have the same doctrine. Speaking of doctrine, Oh, we've got Charlie Brown in the yeah. background for this one. <clears throat> Don't know how well that'll pick up on the episode, but that'll be great. <laughs> so well, speaking of doctrine, okay, primary things, secondary things, and yeah. even tertiary things, the IFCA, or IFCA International, rather, doesn't have a doctrinal statement that just stays in the primary column but ventures into secondary. Yeah. So you can't be a part of the IFCA and have any view you want on baptism or any hermeneutic you want. Right. So let's talk about some of the distinctives that are in the doctrinal statement holding these churches together. Yeah, some of the distinctives that would be uh, important for us to um, fellowship around, although we definitely recognize that people that differ with us on this are brothers in Christ. There's no problem with that. But it does uh, kind of impinge on cooperation on certain things. Um, would be cessationism is a massive one. Uh, we are all committed cessationists. Um, a second would be the issue revolving around the biblical view of women in ministry. Um, so if you, you're okay with having a, a woman pastor, you just wouldn't fit in IFCA. And then a third one that would be pretty important is our commitment to a consistent literal grammatical hermeneutic, which would mean that we are dispensational. And we don't apologize for that. And, of course, that attaches with it as a, a requirement. Our uh, eschatology is premillennial, pre-tribulational. And, uh, you know, those are things that I know everybody's not there. And we're not saying that you're not going to heaven if you're not there. But we are saying, as a fellowship, we can all be committed to working together because we know we're all on the same page. We're not at war with people that aren't there, but we definitely want to make sure that we stand up for our commitment. So. And we'll look forward to saying, I told you so, to all those people. When they get there. <laughs> that may happen. I hope it does. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was actually about to go that way. So this this week, we're actually the whole focus of the conference is actually on our eschatology, yeah. uh, and just the the distinctives of that. On Monday night, you gave a message about yeah. why it's important to study biblical eschatology. I'm going to test you on your see if you can remember your outline. Sometimes I can't remember my outline after I <laughs> preach, but <laughs> if you could just you know review some of those things, with why yeah. is it important? You know, there's a lot of people that would say eschatology is completely unimportant. We don't even yeah. need to really go there. We can have unity and all these other things. Eschatology it, yeah. it doesn't even belong in the third column. It can, you know down the road. Yeah, yeah. Why is it important for us to be studying 
biblical eschatology. Yeah, and, I, and I'll add that the, the whole propositional statement as a preaching pastor, right, a professor, is that it was uh, why it's important for us to study and teach it mm. because it goes beyond just the personal study of it. Yeah. But because of those things, it's important for us to, as pastors, teach that to our people. And the first thing really comes at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation 1.1 says it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And it's important because it reveals to us the glory of our Savior Jesus. I mean, if, if you skip it or you pick and choose or you start doing stuff with the text, then you're really or you, or you become one of those pan-millennialists, then you really do rob people of seeing the fullness of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure that the glory of God is just magnified in the text. Yeah. And, and there is no greater way to do that than to teach what the text says about Jesus. Yes, while he was here on earth, but now that he's glorified and he's coming again, we want to see him coming on that white horse with the saints behind him and as he speaks he opens his mouth and the sword comes and destroys our enemies that's another point as well that was tied to that message and by the way there were seven points and so you're really testing me but towards the end we went over into peter and we talked about the fact that the judgment of god is coming and that's important it's important for us um, as preachers of righteousness like noah is that we need to be in this world not just as a light pointing to the salvation of Christ, but also as those that are sounding a warning. You need to know that the judgment of God is coming and you need to repent and you need to bow the knee before Jesus. I mean, unapologetically. And that teaching that reminds us he's coming and that impels our evangelism. It tells us we need to warn those people that are out there not just because they may die tonight, because that is true, but be if they live a long and healthy life and Jesus comes again, they're going to face the judgment of God. And, and we want to warn them about that. A third point was that it gives us hope, right? We want to have hope. We want people to have hope in this dark world with all of this uh, turmoil that's going on in the world. There is hope in, the, in knowing that Jesus is coming. He's coming again. Now, as pre-tribulationalists, we believe he's coming again for his church. But we also know that he's coming again to straighten all of this out. He's going to fix this broken world. And I'll give you one more. Is the fact is that we need to remember all of this and teach this and study it. Because the reality is, is that there is a lot of um, a confusion around this. And that confusion is not unknowable. It's it's able to be known with the study and the application. And the point is that there is a blessing that is promised to those who will read and who will hear and who will keep what is written in these things. And we want to make sure that we bless our churches with that. So now um, dispensationalists aren't cool. Well, not all of us are cool. <laughs> I mean, when you think of the more Christian famous type people, big yeah. Eva type people, yeah. I mean, the vast majority of them fall into the amillennial camp. And postmillennialism, I believe, is on the rise these days. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, kind of in vogue. Yeah. Um, and dispensationalists just kind of get a bad rap for being... Yeah. Weird, dorky, chopping up the Bible, yeah. um, inconsistent, all those yeah. things. What do you think, well, well, how do you view those things? And what do you think the future is for 
the IFCA movement as the IFCA holds its ground and, right. and those affiliated with the IFCA, we, we're holding our ground on this issue of hermeneutics and eschatology. What's the, how do you view it today and what's the future of that? Yeah, I, I mean, we're trying to be cooler because we did work on our coffee this year and I've noticed that there are more guys that have tattoos. So we're, we're trying to up our game <laughs> there. I got, I got some fancy socks here and we're, we're going with that. We all got beards. So beards, we're beards trying to follow the trend of coolness. <laughs> but, um, but the reality is that truth isn't determined by coolness because that always changes. Truth is determined by scripture, and as Christians, it's determined exegetically, not by ad hominem attacks because you don't have the the, the uh, cool guy's answers. I, I've heard that too many times. Is like, well, how can we be right as dispensationalist pastor? Because look at all the guys that are writing the books. I mean, are you saying they're all wrong? Well, that's not the way we determine truth, is, you know, who's got the bigger gang or who's got the cooler guys who's got the bigger conferences and who's get the big book contract. That's not the way you determine truth, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, the way that we determine truth is by sitting down and opening the book and studying it to see what it says. Now that may make us nerdy dorks who are always in the Greek text, but the facts are the facts. And we're going to have to stand before God and give an answer for how we handled his word. And so, uh, you know, some guys get a little over obsessed about, you know, what the opinions of men are, but I don't think that's our concern. I think that what's made IFCA stable is the fact that that's what we're looking at. We're stable not because we don't have issues. We do. We're stable because the standard doesn't change. And if you have a stable standard, then although there may be, you know, every once in a while a kerfuffle over some issue, um, we can get back to the book because that's the standard. Um, I had a guy ask me today, he said he's studying the book of Revelation and wanted to know what were some resources that he could delve into. And as we were talking through that, I said, you know, if you were to get um, a set of commentaries from guys that are not dispensational on eschatology, as many books as you have, you'd probably have that many opinions about what the the type or the allegory or the symbolism mm -hmm. means, because you just have to have a good imagination and, you know, they can throw their eggs at us all they want. But, you know, if, if you got soft skin, you shouldn't be in ministry. <laughs> right. So we'll we'll let them say what they're going to say. In the end, it's the Lord who judges. And uh, we just want to be faithful to the Lord. And I'm not saying our brothers don't want to be faithful and that they don't they don't study the word as well. We're just trying to be consistent. And we know that even our brothers who don't agree with us write in their own books that if you're consistent in this literal hermeneutic, then you're going to end up a dispensationalist, yeah. which says to me a lot. I'm like, thank you. Yeah. That's praise. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that just speaks to the importance of the hermeneutic. It Absolutely. all comes back to it. It's, it is the hermeneutic that leads to their conclusions. And yeah. we want to keep that straight as well. It's not the other way around. Yeah. But, well, Dr. Vargas, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been, yeah. this has been great. And yeah, we look forward to see, seeing what God does in the IFC in the future. Amen. Amen. Thank you, so, guys. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. I appreciate you.